I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be delving into the enduring legacy of the sci-fi miniseries V, which was released 40 years ago this year. For those unfamiliar with V, it told the story of reptilian aliens who invaded Earth, claiming to be our friends. However, what they were really after were resources and harvesting humans as a food source. This wasn't your average alien invasion story, though. It was inspired by the work of Sinclair Lewis, specifically the novel It Can't Happen Here, and originated as something other than a sci-fi tale. Put simply, V was not only an alien invasion sci-fi hit, that was watched in 33 million homes in 1983, but also a parable, a warning, if you will, about how fascism can take hold in a country. In that way, the miniseries V followed in the footsteps of the work of Rod Serling, using the sci-fi format to explore social issues. Joining us to discuss V and its legacy is the show's creator, Kenneth C. Johnson, or Kenny Johnson, who also worked on such projects as the TV series Alien Nation, The Incredible Hulk, Bionic Woman, and the rather interesting film An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe, which featured Vincent Price the legendary horror icon, reenacting various Poe tales in a riveting one-man show fashion. We'll be discussing some of those aforementioned projects as well as V 
and the ways in which V has even greater social significance today than when it was released all those years ago. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Kenny Johnson, creator of the hit TV miniseries V. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with. Kenny Johnson, uh, who has worked on such shows as The Bionic Woman, uh, The Incredible Hulk TV series, Alien Nation, also a really great and underrated Vincent Price movie known as An Evening with Edgar Allan Poe, and of course, the creator of the immortal science fiction franchise, V. Uh, how are you doing? I'm delighted to be here, and I'm very happy. Uh, uh, it's 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 wonderful to think that people are still interested in the stuff that I did so long ago. I mean, V just had its 40th anniversary. A uh, big article in uh, Vanity Fair, as as I know you're aware of, um, and uh, and the Bionic shows. I mean, it's hard to believe that it was I was such a child when I started. You know, but uh, uh, it's great that people uh, seem to still get uh, caught up in some of the stuff, even though it's uh, it's old and bill bixby's blue jeans are so bell-bottomed at the bottom it's like oh god you know but uh, uh but the but the emotions and stuff that we did in the hulk and everything carries on and people still uh i sent off a couple of uh, autograph photos today to friends who had said uh, uh we loved them since we were young and now we're older and we like them even more so it's a it's a great life my dad was a huge fan of uh, the Incredible Hulk series. And one of the things he loved about it actually was just the human element and the sort of human drama of Bill Bixby's life. And I think that also comes up in V. I want to get into that. But how did V come together? I know it was inspired by Sinclair Lewis, but uh, was it also um, in any way inspired by the time period? Did you have concerns about you know, rising anti-science sentiments in the 80s, the sort of Reagan era, maybe anti-progressivism. How, how did it all come together? What inspired well, it? Wasn't, it? It wasn't so much that. I, I, when I read, uh, I'd been a big, big fan of Sinclair Lewis's, uh, his other uh, books like Aerosmith and uh, Main Street and um, Elmer Gantry. And uh, and um, uh, he wrote uh, It Can't Happen Here in 1935 uh, as sort of a cautionary tale uh, about uh, what was happening in Germany and Italy that, you know, happening in America. Well, it can't happen here. Of course, we're America. <laughs> oh, guess again. Uh, right now, all you have to do is look around. And uh, uh, and so I, I got intrigued about the fact also, uh, Joe, that um, uh, there hadn't been a, a, a sea change in American life really since 1941 when uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. I mean, suddenly overnight, we were living in a, a sort of a different environment, a different world. And it wasn't until 9-11 uh, that uh, something that dramatic and uh, and terrible happened again uh, here on our shores, you know. And, uh, and I got to, to thinking how it, interesting it would be to see how ordinary people would react to extraordinary circumstances uh, like the rise of fascism. And my original script for, for V, we didn't have any aliens or spaceships, you probably know. Uh, but uh, but it was really about uh, a sort of homegrown fascist takeover of the United States. And and, and you know, and here we are 40 years later and we're in a, uh, a political environment here that is so scary and reminiscent of that kind of thing. 
um, it, it, that uh, that's what I was interested in was was um, power and about how people reacted to power. How some people, like the Vichy French, would uh, were collaborators with the Nazis, uh, and other people, uh, sort of in the middle level, would sort of say, "Well, if I keep my head down, maybe they won't get at me." But but what intrigued me the most was. Uh, the people that fought back against that kind of situation. I, I did a lot of research when I was writing the original piece about the rise of the Third Reich and how it happened. Um, and in V, one of my favorite lines uh, is uh, uh, later in the piece when Mark Singer, Mike Donovan, has discovered the dark side of the, the, the whole story and how they're here to take our water and consume our our people even, uh, you know, and he's talking to the sympathizer who was one of the visitors and said, how did somebody like that get to be your leader? And the line that I wrote was uh, from Martin to answer. He said, charisma, timing, and not enough of us stood up to speak against it until it was too late. And it's scary how that can happen in, as it did in World War II in Germany. Um, and uh, and how it's uh, similar stuff is going on right now in this country, uh, and it's it's a, a, there are a number of articles have been written about how V really sort of predicted the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, and how a uh, charismatic populist, uh, uh, sarcastic jokester, a could, sort of demagogue, uh, yeah. Oh my God, exactly, and and now to see that uh, having happened. And in spite of it having happened, we're still there are still people, including the man himself, saying, well, you know, I won the 2020 election. It was a landslide, you know, and there's nobody in his party that is stand, standing up. I mean, when Nixon went off the rails in 1972, uh, Barry Goldwater, the most conservative member of the Senate, went to his office and said, you are not going to get out of this and you you don't have my vote. And then he was the most conservative in the Senate and you're going to face impeachment. And uh, uh, and that's not happening now. All the Republicans now are just zip numbs the word because they can't afford to lose the base, you know, and it's a it's a frightening situation that we're in. And which just proves, I guess, to me, the timelessness of V, because it's, I've always, you maybe heard, you've heard me say, it's like Spartacus and the revolt of the slaves, or it's the American revolution. It's any oppressed group that is being uh, oppressed and suppressed by an overweening uh, superpower. And uh, that's just, I think what, what struck me was how different people would react and how they would uh, behave. And that's what I was trying to see. Sorry about the uh, loud blower outside. I'm trying to talk loud enough so that it doesn't screw no, up your I, I can hear you perfectly. Oh, I, I was okay. just going to say, so it sounds like you were more influenced in in maybe looking at how things like fascism took hold in Europe um, in before World War II, and right. then also Sinclair Lewis. Uh, so it wasn't so much even current events that were happening in the U.S. at the time no, that were no. influencing you. Okay, No, it wasn't. It was just the notion of what an interesting concept to see what uh, Lewis had written in the, in the 30s and uh, and how I how that would something like that would translate if suddenly there were a takeover in the U.S. and uh, and particularly if it came from a grassroots side when it when it you know, it's the old pogo thing. We have met the enemy 
and he is us. You know, that's what's what's scary. Uh, and, uh, and and that's what really what really drove it. And uh, uh, of course, the, the Brandon Tartikoff, who was president at NBC at the time, and you probably heard elsewhere heard me say elsewhere how he he wasn't sure that Americans would really understand, you know, fascism. Right. They, and, they uh, thought it would be too complex, or the American yeah, I mind said, I said, grasp yeah, it. I said it's not a complicated concept, Brandon. You shave your head, you put on a black shirt, and you beat somebody up. You know, it's really pretty simple stuff. Uh, and you lie, you lie. And and I realized early on as I was writing it, the, 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 the key element, one of the key elements to be to be and to taking over the um, uh, position, the occupation of any country is to seize the communications. You know, once you've got the communications, then you're North Korea. Then you are Mr. Putin, who has an 85 or so percent approval rating. Well, of course he does, because all they hear is the good side of Mr. Putin. And uh, uh, and so once you've got communication, and that's why the television factored so much into it, and the uh, the reportage that we were getting, um, and uh, and it was uh, uh, it was a it was a wonderful thing to see the audience respond to that, and really. I tried to create characters too, uh, JG, that uh, so that everybody in the audience would have somebody to say, "Oh, I think I'm like that person." Yeah, or or my, oh, I hope I'm not like that person, but you know, I might because I got to protect my family, and you know, so it's uh, it was interesting to see uh, how various people in the audience, and and I purposefully wrote it with no presidents uh, and no generals and no seven days in May kind of stuff, you know, because I wanted it to be about ordinary people in an ordinary neighborhood. How important was it for you when creating V and, and writing it to really build up the story? Because I, I'll be honest, I really like the first part of V so much. It's one of my favorite uh, openings to a mini series. <laughs> I like the second part, but there's more action in the second part. And I, I love the build up. You really build up the relationships and all the human characters. How important was it for you to really emphasize the human drama and the human relationships? It was the most important thing uh, uh, of all, all the way along. Uh, I think the best day I ever had in my in my career, really, was uh, I had four editors working with me because we were in such a crunch to try to do it as fast as we could. So I didn't have time to just sit with one editor and go through it. I had four guys brilliant guys that had worked with me on uh, on the incredible hulk and some of them back into the bionic days um and uh, and so each of them had different pieces of it uh and uh, and i was the only one that sort of had a sort of overview because i was bouncing from room to room but we hadn't put it all together yet and 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 i was really beginning to get you know concerned about how it was going to look at all and then, of course none of the visual effects had been done yet or any of the you know all of that so I said, you know, guys, we just got to tape it together and let's put it let's put it together and let's see what we've got so far. What does it look like with just the actors, you know? And uh, and we put it together. The guys all cut it together. Uh, and uh, we went into one of the small screening rooms, the executive screening rooms at the front of, of the Warner Brothers lot, only about 20, um, not even that many, about two dozen seats at the most uh, in the room. And just me and the editors and the assistant editors. And we sat there watching the raw footage cut together with just blank leader in with it says scene missing or effects missing. And there was, there was no visual effects, no sound effects, no music, no dialogue cleanups, nothing. It was just the actors working and JG, it took our heads off. We couldn't believe how powerful it was 
uh, how all of the performances had just been spot on. There was not a weak moment in the piece. And uh, and the lights came up and we were all sitting there just sort of agog with with how powerful it was without, before we'd added all the frosting, we had really baked the cake. And um, it was an, it, the, such an exciting day. Uh, I, there was only one problem with it. And I, uh, uh, I, when, when I first told Brandon the story, he said, how long do you think it is? And he says, feels like it's like six hours. And I said, I think I can do it in four. He said, okay, well, whatever it is, that's what it'll be. Okay, so we settled on four hours. And, um, and I called Brandon as I walked out of the screening room. Uh, and I said, hey, I, I just wanted to let you know, I've just seen, we've just seen the whole thing. There's nothing but the actors working and it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, uh, I said, there's just one problem. Uh, it, with commercials, it's not gonna be four hours. He said, well, what is it? I said, it's gonna be four hours and 15 minutes. And he said, well, yeah, well, we can trim it down. I said, Brandon, I need your help. Because I'm great at killing my babies in the editing room, you know. I'm great at uh, at uh, saying, "Oh God, it was so hard to get that shot, but it just takes up too much time. It has to be cut," you know. So I'm I'm used to do that all the time. But I said, Brandon, I don't know. None of us here who've just seen this can figure out what scenes we could cut that would shorten the movie, yes, but would also damage the movie. And uh, so he came over. I said, can you will you come and give me some fresh eyes on it? And uh, uh, and he said, sure. He came over the next day, sat in the same screening room, watched the same thing. Uh, and it was um, uh, it was an amazing. And the lights came up and he's sitting there. You know, and I'm going. And he said, well, can we go outside? And I said, sure, sure. Let's go outside. And uh, and I said, what, what, what are you thinking? And he said, I'm thinking I have to get 15 more minutes from the affiliate stations. I said, has anybody ever done that? And Brandon said, beats the shit out of me. I don't think so. And uh, and he was right. No, no, no network president had ever called all the, got all the stations together on a conference call and said, I need 15 more minutes of your airtime. And they all agreed to it. And, um, and the first night of V ran from nine until 1115. Uh, but he agreed that he didn't want to mess with it. And uh, so the film ended up on the screen the way you saw it, the same way that Brandon saw it. There were no scenes left on the cutting room floor. Uh, everything we shot was in the movie. Virtually every angle of everything we shot was in the movie. I'm a big um, efficient director. I don't like to shoot stuff that if I'm, I'm not going to use it, you know, so... Uh, uh, but but that day where it was just the emotion of the actors carrying the whole thing and knowing that all of the music and visual effects and all was just going to be icing on the cake. Uh, that's when I knew we it was really a great day for me. I was going to say something that's really interesting is I, I know that people will focus in on some of the main actors like Mark Singer or uh, Jane Badler. But really, you have an incredible supporting cast in that movie. I mean, Leonardo Cimino um, as Abraham. And also, uh, I, I love that you had Andrew Prine in the movie as one of the you know evil visitors. Uh, how did did the stars just align when it came to getting such a really ensemble and brilliant cast? It's um, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, normally when you when you are going to do a four hour miniseries, particularly one as complex as this one with all the visual effects and, and all of that, uh, you would take probably three or four months to prep it and to cast it, you know, and I, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, 
we didn't have that much time. Instead of having four months to prep from the day Brandon read the screenplay and said, yes, go, until the day I said action for the first time was two and a half weeks. And people in the industry hear that and they go, no, 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 you can't do that, <laughs> you know? And I said, yeah, we we had two and a half weeks of prep. That's all we had. That's all the time I had for casting and for uh, location scouting and for set, you know? Uh, and, um, and, and we, what we did was we did all the all the prep and all the casting we could for two and a half weeks, and then we started shooting. And there were still people that hadn't been cast uh, who we needed to get cast because they were going to be needed on the set pretty soon. Jane Badler was uh, uh, the last one cast uh, originally out, uh, and um, uh, and we were already filming. Uh, she came down and auditioned for me when we were filming the first week uh, down at the uh, the Haynes Power Station uh, in Long Beach, where which was our chemistry plant. Um, and, uh, and then immediately she was just rushed to makeup and, and all of that. Uh, but I had two terrific casting directors, Elizabeth Hoffman and Mindy Marin. Elizabeth was head of casting at Warner's, uh, and Mindy was her just assistant at the time. Mindy has gone on to be like a humongous casting director. Uh, and, um, and they managed to bring in people to me. And as soon as I got to somebody I liked, I really liked, I said, okay, that cat, that you, it's her. We don't need to see anybody else. Thanks. You know? And, um, uh, so that we had, we were just going a mile a minute. Uh, Shannon Monahan, my, my assistant, uh, her boyfriend was this guy uh, named Frank Ashmore. And she said, could Frank come in and read for you for, for Martin? And I said, Sure. And he came in and read and he was perfect and he he got cast. And a, and a lot of the roles like that happen that way. Also, I asked Brandon early on, look, do you want do you want to I mean, big miniseries always had big name actors in it. Uh, most miniseries had uh, a, a movie star in it or or at least a television star or stars. And Brandon said, no, you, you don't need it, Kenny. And I said, are you sure? And he said, no, the story you're telling is going to be what really makes the thing work. And um, and to this day, JG, it is the only miniseries that's ever been done without even a television star in it. And Mark Mark Singer had done Beastmaster beforehand, and, uh, but it was not a big show necessarily uh, that, that a lot of people knew of. Um, and Mark was cast on Friday night before we started shooting on Monday. Uh, and one of the last guys to the, the people that came in and I had seen him uh, do Petruchio in Taming of the Shrew uh, about five years earlier at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And I remember saying, who is he? You know, and uh, uh, and he came in and uh, just did a knockdown um, audition for us. And uh, we said, that's great. OK, you're in and moving on. Um, and so I, I was very lucky. Uh, it's interesting. Somebody was talking the other day uh, about Rafael Campos, who played uh, Sancho, the, uh, the the Mexican gardener, you know, and how how that had really affected him so much. Uh, um, and and it was very important to me to to have a really multi ethnic cast, and they were all written into the script that way. I mean, Evan Kim is written in the script as a Chinese American guy, you know, because it was very important to me before diversity became a big word that everybody was spouting all the time. Uh, it was very important to me to have that diversity in cast. 
I was going to add to that. Uh, not only does it have a really great multi-ethnic cast, uh, but just it looks at people that are from different walks of life and it doesn't fall into, um, you know, easy answers in some ways. So what right. I mean by that is I think in lesser hands, V could have become just another alien invasion story that appealed to like anti-immigrant sentiments, but it doesn't do that <laughs> because you have a character like Willie played brilliantly by Robert England, who's actually a good guy, even though he's one of these aliens, you know, there's also uh, I mean, you could have done a whole like, Oh, the uneducated versus the educated um, with the whole anti-science thing, but you have people that are like, not PhD people as characters right. in the movie, like Brad played by William Russ or Elias right. played by Michael Wright. It's you don't fall into like the trap of uh, creating caricatures in the movie. No, I, I was I didn't want to do that, uh, but I just I wanted to people I wanted people all of them who felt real, you know, and who I knew could give me a real performance, uh, and the just good, solid, honest actors. I had been lucky to work with Faye Grant uh, a, a year and a, yeah a year earlier in eight, 1981. Uh, we did a TV movie uh, called Senior Trip, uh, which was sort of uh, autobiographical about my senior high school trip to uh, New York City when, when our senior class. And uh, and Faye played the girl with the checkered past who, uh, you know, was trying to find her way to move into life and uh, with a new persona. And she was so good. And um, uh, and when I started writing V, uh, I, had, I had had in mind the idea of having the, the heroine of the resistance be a young female, because in my research, uh, I had come across, uh, researching the Nazi era, I had come across a number of stories about young women who rose to extraordinary heights as leaders of the resistance. I was going to uh, say like, Sophie Scholl in the White Rose Resistance. Well, there's that. There's uh, and Andrea de Jong particularly intrigued me. She was a young Belgique woman who uh, uh, became she she led a, a she found a bunch of, um, of fl uh, uh, British flyers that had been shot down, and uh, she said, "You want me to take you to Spain?" And they said, uh, "Sure." <laughs> you know, uh, who is this girl? You know, she was in bobby socks. She literally was wearing bobby socks. Little, you know. And uh, and she said, I can get you there. And she uh, walked them across the Pyrenees from France into Spain, took them to Bilbao, gave them over to the, the Spanish resistance there. And they said, how did you do, how did you get here? And she said, I walked them here. You want more? And she created the, what was called the Comet line of transportation to get them uh, to get uh, flyers that had been shot down back into the war again. Uh, she was even captured by the Nazis at one point, And they said, uh, she can't be the leader of the resistance. She's just a girl, you know, and that intrigued me. And and I also wanted her to be reluctant. That's why I wanted to have Faye's character not be a character that was um, uh, seeking the the ownership or the the leadership of the resistance, but rather one that was thrust into it, uh, so that she'd be suffering from um, uh, we didn't use the term then, but imposter syndrome. Uh, and uh, and that was uh, that was to me an important character to to play that way, um, and it was um, I mean clearly the the uh, uh, I wanted the hero to be a cameraman primarily because um, years ago um, Dan Rather of CBS News wrote a book about being a journalist uh, and 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 the title of the book was the camera doesn't blink. 
and uh, meaning the camera's always watching, you know, and that's, that was, I passed that along to Mark when we were doing it. And he absolutely understood what I was talking about. He was the one that was where everybody else is going, wow, this is such a great thing, an offer we can't refuse. He's the one that's going, okay, let's, let's just watch this and see what happens. You know, keep the camera rolling, you know. How important was it for you to have, say, characters like Martin or Willie, who they are, you know, aliens, they are the visitors, but they're sort of, uh, they, they don't agree with the other visitors. They don't agree with the plan. How important was it for you to deal with uh, those sort of complex issues? I mean, I thought the inclusion of Willie and his sort of subplot where he's facing a lot of xenophobia from these other workers who are afraid of him taking their job. You didn't right. really have to include that, but you chose to. And I think it dealt with issues that are still important today, like xenophobia. Right, exactly. And that's that's the part of it. And also, in, in my research, it was very clear that there were a lot of good Nazis. There were a lot of people who would reach out to help uh, the others, uh, and particularly the Jews who were being uh, stigmatized and all. Uh, and so there was a spectrum. You know, there was a spectrum of humanity on both sides. Uh, just as there was, there were collaborators on on, on our side, both um, in World War II and uh, and in V, uh, and that's what um, uh, I mean. I was ra I was raised in a very bigoted, anti-Semitic household. Um, uh, I was born in the South in Arkansas. Uh, my father and mother were both born in the same hospital I was in Arkansas. Uh, and and my father was a brilliant Phi Beta Kappa guy, engineer, electrical engineer, but he was per completely convinced that black people had rabbit blood. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you don't see that sickle cell anemia stuff in, in whites. Their, their, their blood's no good. That's why they're not as they, they don't have the intellectual capacity of the white people. And he and he would say to me, this is my father, Phi Beta Kappa, big you know, brain saying, uh, no, Kenny, that's, that's, they're just inferior. Why, there have been psychological uh, studies to prove that. And he gave me a couple of names of people I looked up later who were, of course, doctors and such, but they were also wackos, <laughs> that, uh, and their research was, was useless. Um, so it was important to me to, um, uh, to show as many sides as, of the spectrum as I could, and, uh, and including people like Andy, Andy Prine's character, who um, later on in, in the sequel novel that I wrote, V, the second generation, uh, there's a lot of palace intrigue where, where you will see Andy Prime's character uh, bending with the wind and, and, and keeping his eyes on who, where's the power swinging to, you know? It's not, again, it's not unlike what's happening today. Uh, yes, I disagree with uh, Mr. Trump, but... Uh, uh, I don't want to talk about the fact that he lies all the time uh, because I can't do that. Uh, it's like these people are walking a tightrope that is so dangerous for our country. And uh, uh, and particularly when so many of them are just silence is consent. You know, it's what Thomas uh, um well, I'm thinking of a man for all seasons, you know, uh, where where he said it, silence is consent. And if I if uh, uh, I if I speak up and against you, then I'm speaking against you. But if I just stay silent, you know, it's it's even more damning can be. Just a few more things I briefly wanted to cover here, if we could. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting. I think 
V, the original miniseries, has a very cinematic quality to it. And I can tell that this was during a time when certain movies that were made for TV uh, in the U.S. would get European theatrical releases. I'm sure you had that in mind while you were making this because it does have a sort of cinematic quality to it. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, it's interesting. When I did my pilot for The Incredible Hulk, uh, maybe you know, um, I, I I was went to series and going along, and I, and I got a call one day from Universal, and they said, hey, congratulations, you have the top grossing movie in Europe. I said, what are you talking about? I, I haven't made a movie. Yeah. And they said, yeah, you're a pilot for The Incredible Hulk. We released it overseas. It's the top grossing motion picture in Europe. And it was for like a month or two over there. Uh, and uh, enough so that when I did uh, the the the, uh, the opener for the second season, Married, where Bixby gets married to Marriott Hartley, who is, you know, and it becomes a wonderful love story, uh, tragic love story. Uh, that one was also released overseas. And, uh, and as the bride of the Incredible Hulk, not my title, um, but uh, and it did huge money over there, too. I mean, it, they, the, both of them, the, particularly the first one, made a huge amount of money overseas. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'll give you a short addendum to that. I got a check a few months later from Universal. And I said, this is a very strange check. What is this check for? And they said, oh, that's your share of the, uh, uh, the, the profits from the theatrical release overseas. I said, really? This is my share of, I think it had made something like 17 or $18 million overseas, the Hulk pilot, as a movie. Um, and that was in a time when that was like, like $100 million now, you know. And uh, and I said, oh, this 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 is my cut of the uh, $18 million. And they said, yeah, okay. The check was for six dollars and 41 cents and but it was just my writer's check i got my director's check later and it was for three dollars and a quarter so i almost made 10 bucks on the deal but uh but um but when i started doing v i thought you know this could probably be a theatrical release overseas as well and uh, and i said to john mcpherson my cinematographer uh, i said look let's frame it for 185 let's frame it for letterbox and just protect for television, um, and uh, and he's and because in those days they were only broadcasting in four by three. You know the TVs hadn't gone like this yet. Uh, but uh, when <laughs> when Warner's finally decided after me leaning on them for years to do a DVD release, I said uh, and they said you know we looked at it in widescreen and, and it looks really great. And I said yeah well that's because it was framed that way. Oh really. Uh, and then they said, and then I asked them what they're going to use for a soundtrack. And they said, well, we'll use your original soundtrack. It's great. I said, it's mono, you know. Well, you mean it's mono? I said, well, you Warners wouldn't give me the money in 1983 to dub it in stereo because they said, nobody's broadcasting in stereo. And I said, well, no, not right now, but next week they will be, you boneheads. So when we did the dub, for the DVD, I had way more, almost three much, three times the amount of time I had to dub, uh, to redub it, because we use. I had, I had in my own self it had kept the audio uh, of the the uh, recording session of the orchestra, so I had a three stripe uh, stereo uh, master of music tracks, uh, and but we had to completely rebuild the uh, sound effects tracks and with today's technology and that was today was like 2002 i think is when it came out 2001 or two 
but the, the soundtrack on the DVD and now the Blu-ray is is a blowaway because it's 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 you know five point stereo surround and it's it's uh, it's great. But yes, the short answer is yes. It's more cinematic. It was designed to be. But even when I was working in TV, uh, JG, even when I was doing the Bionic Woman episodes, I, I did the big of the, the Doomsday is Tomorrow, the one that uh, two parter that was one of the ones that's most fondly remembered, particularly by me because it was my first big direct directing gig for a two hour show. Um, but uh, I was always a believer. I, my, I'd been trained by looking at movies. You know, I went to a theater school, Carnegie Mellon. It was no, there was no film or TV there, but I ran a film society for four years. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I just had cinema and that's what I wanted to do. And I was not one of those people that thought of television as well. It has to be close up here, close up there and an over the shoulder. And that's the scene. So no, you know, a, a scene can play all in one if you just, if it's designed properly. And uh, and I never got into that uh, the feeling that uh, you had to you know box yourself in like that. So yeah, so I've always sort of thought cinematically, even when I was doing TV movies for TV. You know, it's interesting. I, I, this has to come up at some point in our conversation, so I will bring it up now. Uh, you know, I know that you probably have gotten fan mail from people saying, <laughs> "Oh my God, you understand the reptilians real? They're in charge." How do you sort of respond to the people uh, that are like conspiracy theorists who think that this is like a documentary or whatever? I, you know, it's I, and I ask that because it's interesting to me. Conspiracy theorists, I think I have like a certain amount of empathy in that. I think it's good to have a healthy distrust of authority and and people with, you know, massive amounts of power or wealth. Uh, but then they take it into this direction that can get really exploited Ooh. by figures like Trump. Exactly. Exactly. It's the um, uh, it, it's funny because that's actually that's where the uh, um, uh, the Vanity Fair current Vanity Fair article that's in the June issue right now of Vanity Fair. That's where it originated. Uh, uh, Anthony Bresnikan, the writer, contacted me originally uh, to talk about that aspect of it. Uh, and, and he had picked up on it because uh, early I think it was either late last year, or early this year. There was a, um, uh, a a front page article in the Los Angeles Times about, and it was about me and uh, how my work had been co-opted by QAnon, um, and how they had uh, embraced the whole reptilian uh, underneath the skin aspect of uh, possibilities. Uh, they'd also borrowed from uh, Ridley Scott's movie White Squall, I think where uh, there was a, a sign on the boat that they were on in this training mission. And on the boat, it was one on the one for all and all for one or something like that. It was the it was whatever the QAnon phrase is, that's where they think it came from, you know. And Ridley said, no, it was a prop, you know, that we thought that, you know, it was a good moment. And, uh, uh, you know, and I uh, in, came up with the idea for the reptilian race just because I was looking for to, for as much truth as I could put into the piece. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, Michael Durrell playing um, uh, Robert Maxwell in V says, this could have happened right here. 
they're all going, no, 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 what? And he said, yeah. And he explains it in the miniseries about how the, the reptilians ruled the earth. And then 65 million years ago, boom, the comet hit or whatever it was that created the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, and the reptiles slipped away. Otherwise, we might very well have grown up to be or evolved to be a biped reptilian intelligent race. Uh, and to me, that's what made more sense because uh, I did need biped people to be because they were going to be played by human actors, whatever was going on, obviously. Uh, but um, it's it, it is I've gotten so many. I mean, I get a thousand, literally tens of thousands of emails and I try to answer over the years. I've tried to answer as many of them as I can personally. Uh, and uh, the minority, a very small minority are people who say, we understand that you get it and we're really excited that you know and you are sharing this to make the world aware. And I have to write them back and say, no, you know, that's not what it is. And I don't believe in that. And I do I believe that there could be aliens that look like that or something? Yeah, they, I believe there could be aliens that look like just about anything you can imagine and a lot of things you can't imagine. Uh, but no, uh, there is no uh, uh, Joe, Joe, Joe Biden and Tom Hanks are not pedophiles. Uh, Hillary Clinton is not a lizard underneath. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's. It's it's a, a, a terrifying thing when I read about so many people that really still buy into that sort of thing, uh, and I feel I feel badly for them because they've been deluded uh, by people for their the, for the gain and uh, aggrandizement of the people who are preaching this this crap. I was going to say, you know, it you know, like in V, it seems like the real conspiracy in V was. Uh... You know, the visitors creating a conspiracy theory to control people, right? Like, oh, we have to be against the scientists. In a way, they can cock their own conspiracy, which is the conspiracy theory itself, right? Saying, oh, the scientists are behind everything. You know? that's, that's exactly right. And uh, and then to see what happened in, under the Trump administration when suddenly Anthony Fauci is being uh, um, stigmatized and the scientists, I mean, it was like, so that's another thing that I've started, started getting email about was, look what's happening. You, you said the scientists were going to be ostracized and, uh, uh, and stigmatized. And, uh, and, uh, and here it is. Here it is. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a terrible quality of, of human nature that if you, if somebody tells you a lie, well, it was, it was, it was, it was the Nazi philosophy too, you know, you can tell the biggest lie you want, but if you just keep repeating it over and 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 over, and particularly to people who are only getting their information from one particular source, be it Russian television or North Korean television, or the right wing networks like Fox News and that sort of thing, um, who will just channel you right into it and keep you in the silo, and not even admit on their own air, oh, by the way, we were lying to you and that's all been proven and there's there's texts and there's audio of us saying that we are lying to these to the American people. And yet the American people don't get to hear that because they're only watching what's in the silo. And it's a scary thing. Um, and it was important to me from the very beginning to have a uh, uh, to have an aspect of the Jewish situation from World War II in V about how a, a particular group of people could be ostracized. And I was trying to think about, okay, how do I, who can that be? And then I realized that the scientists were the perfect ones 
And, it, and I even asked that in the movie, uh, why are they after so many scientists? Because why? Because the scientists may be the ones that can figure out how to defeat them. And so what you've got to do is scapegoat them and put them into uh, ghettos and take them away and disappear them into the night and fog of uh, Germany. In, as that, that was the phrase in World War II, they will disappear into the night and fog, which is what happened to so many. And um, uh, so that was really an important aspect. Uh, and also to, to see how it played in the lives of people that would not think of themselves as getting involved, like uh, George Morfogan and his wife uh, who and, and their son, who find the... the, the to do the Anne Frank story, you know, which is one of the things that I had wanted to do, uh, to see what it's like when you are become a conspirator and hiding someone and therefore bringing danger upon yourself, uh, and what heroes what heroes those people were. Uh, so it uh, it just uh, it gave me the opportunity to really get into the human psyche, and 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 the wonderful thing about V two JG was that. That it was a what the, the the networks are always looking for, and, and movie studios are always looking for the four quadrant hit, the one that hits all four quadrants: the adult males, the adult females, the teenagers, and the kids. When you've got something that has that grasp, they love that because that's a it's a big, big audience. That's what. Fortunately, most of my shows have been that kind of a thing: the Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Woman, the Incredible Hulk. Uh, v, Alien Nation. And the most interesting aspect, though, is that the largest single audience segment for all of my stuff has been adult females from the beginning, uh, from the Bionic shows, through the Hulk, uh, through V, through Alien Nation. Uh, the, my largest single audience segment is females. And I think that's because not I sat not because I sat down and said, okay, how can I write that'll something that will be appealing to females? I never had that thought at all. I wrote what would be appealing to me to want to watch, and that means I was writing about human emotions, about uh, human conflict, about human relationships, and much more interested in the drama that was illustrated by that first screening when I saw it with just the drama going on and not all the razzle-dazzle, you know. Uh, and um, uh, and I think that's why my stuff has, has proven to be as successful as it has. And also, the 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 uh, interestingly, the studios and the networks are really most interested in capturing the women because they are the female audience is really the audience that does most of the buying power uh, in the consumer world. And uh, it's, it's so we, interesting too, not to interrupt you, but I, I love how V in a lot of ways it's the story of two different females, right? Uh, Diana on one end, and then um, uh, Jolie, the resistance Julia, leader, on Julia. the other one. Yeah, Jolie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's sort of the the story of two women. Absolutely. And uh, and that comes to uh, to a head in that most dramatic moment when uh, at the at the very end where Diana says another pass, I want to get that woman, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it's also the first moment where where Julie and Faye as a character uh, comes to the, the full pinnacle of her heroism. The first time she has ever fired a weapon. And she's doing it to stand. She stands over the the injured uh, woman and and boy as Diana flies in at her on what is certainly going to be her death. But she's there and she is steadfast. And uh, uh, and that that 
cut from Diana, and it was a, it's a slow move on both of them as uh, as that they as they come together until uh, Donovan comes over the hill with the cavalry. I just had one or two more questions. The first sure. one is, what do you think the um, what for you sets apart people who have a healthy distrust for you know maybe a, a person that that could be abusing their power and a person who falls into sort of divisive thinking and conspiracy theories. How do how do people walk that line? How do we, you know, have that healthy distrust like the resistance in V without falling down like a rabbit hole of paranoia? <laughs> it's a it's a tricky call. I think you you have to uh Question, you know, you see the bumper stickers a lot that say question authority. And I'm a big believer in that. You should always question authority, even when they're the guys that you voted for. Uh, you've got to, or men and women that you voted for, you've got to keep your eye on them and say, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, is uh, is anybody going off the rails here? Or are we are we staying on the rails? That's what's the important thing, because the, the bottom line for me is what's going to be good for the country and the world. Um, and uh, and that that puts us in, in the right path, uh, and that doesn't go too right or too left. And you find them in in both both of our po- political parties, the people that are uber right, who are right now sort of uh, holding uh, the moderates in the Republican Party hostage uh, by their thinking of being so far to the right, and the Supreme Court doing the same thing, which is terrifying. That's the, probably the most fearsome thing. Um, and uh, uh, so it's important to do that, but at the same time, not you know when somebody begins to say you know they there really are lizard people uh, underneath, um, then I would say really show me your proof, you know where's your proof, uh, and that's the thing that unfortunately. Uh, um, what's been happening in the in the last administration and and in so often is that when people get to a position of power, they begin to think they are all powerful. It's the old cliche of absolute power corrupts absolutely, you know. And um, uh, and I think it's important for all of us who are living here in the real world, uh, not in the halls of power, to keep a very close eye on what our our leaders are believing in and thinking about. Right now, for example, there's a lot of people that are getting in line behind Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because his name is Kennedy, not because they know anything about him or what wacky conspiratorial things he believes in. Um, and but oh well, he's a Kennedy, so he must be like uh, Bobby and like Ted and like Jack. And no, he's not. And um, uh, and you've got to really consider the source. That's the main thing. Um, I have uh, friends on the on the on the right wing of uh, of the world. Uh, when I and if I tell, give them a quote from the Los Angeles Times, they'll say, "Well, sure, that's the Los Angeles Times." You know, there it's uber liberal. You know, well. Yeah, more liberal than than the than, but but not as far to the the left as Fox News, for example, is to the right. Um, and Fox News was created by a friend of mine. I knew Roger. Roger Hale. Yeah, I was going to say you knew Roger Ailes. Almost ended yes. up directing for him when Nixon was in power, right? Yeah, yes. I, he offered me the uh, Roger offered me the opportunity to be the Lenny Riefenstahl for Hitler for for Nixon, and I said. Gee, no, I don't think so. I uh, don't want to go that way. But but Rogers, uh, Roger was, uh, I knew him, he hired me to be a producer on the Mike Douglas show, uh, which was a huge, 
a daytime talk show, the very first daytime talk music variety show back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey had a really, really huge audience. The Douglas show had an audience 10 times the size of Oprah's. There were 90 million people tuning into every every week. Roger was the executive producer until Nixon came along and hired that. Uh, Roger convinced Nixon to hire him to be a media advisor, which was a phrase Roger created. And uh, uh, and Roger went off, and that's when I took over the, the, the Douglas show. Uh, but I remember Roger uh, was not really drawn so much by Nixon's politics as Roger was drawn by power. And, and that's what, because Roger also, don't forget, created MSNBC, you know, which is the other end of the spectrum, you know, and uh, before he uh, got sucked into uh, Rupert Murdoch. Um, and so it's, and he, I remember him at one point telling me, you know, Kenny, I'm going to create a network for wealthy white guys. And that's what he did. Uh, there's a reason that all of the, uh, the desks on Fox News were see-through, because he wanted to see those long legs on those leggy blondes. Uh, and he wanted guys walking through the airport to say, oh, oh, yeah, well, I better look at Fox News because oh, they're a pretty nice looking leg. You know, it was totally, uh, and what Roger was always looking for was not uh, a particular political agenda, but power, <laughs> you know. And uh, and it was terrifying what he became. I, I did not know him in later years, unfortunately, or fortunately. Uh, but uh, uh, it's a it's a scary, scary place. So I think the basic thing to, to answer your question, I think, is that um, keep your eye your eyes open and listen to everything, but make sure that you're getting information from different sources so that it's not all coming from from one place. Before closing out, I had to ask. You know, you're a screenwriter, um, and I would say the work you've done uh, with things like V or even Alienation, which I think is a very underrated show. You're sort of a keeping the sort of uh, legacy of people like Rod Serling, who really created genre entertainment, sci-fi and fantasy entertainment that had social commentary in it. You're keeping that alive with the work you've done. Uh, I'm curious, though, uh, what do you think? Do you have any opinions on the um, writer's guild strike? I don't I don't know if you want to comment on that hot topic, but. Well, I, it's it's a uh, it's a thorny issue. There's no question about that. Um, but um, the the writers clearly are not getting the share that they need to get based on uh, what the CEOs are getting. Uh, when you've got a CEO that's making 140 million dollars a year, uh, and they're complaining about having to add an extra writer here or there, um, it's uh, something's wrong there with that. Uh, and it's uh, so I, I, I stand with the Writers Guild. I voted for the strike. Um, and um, uh, and I think that uh, their their ask is actually very interesting. When you really look at the numbers of it, it's if they gave if the studios and the networks gave the writing writers everything that they're asking for, it would be like a little about two percent of their overall intake from uh, the money that they've been getting. So. All, all they're really looking for is a fair share, and hopefully the, uh, you know, it won't go on a hundred days like the last one did, and really cripple so many other people in the industry. The Directors Guild settled pretty quickly, but the Directors Guild got a better deal, and uh, uh, but we're now we're waiting to see if SAG uh, will uh, will step away too, because they've had a, taken a strike vote too, as you know. Um, but. Um, uh, but to, to go back to uh, what you were talking about originally is, uh, or just in this last moment here, um, 
I think it's it's always important to me when when Fox asked me if I'd take a look at Alien Nation, the movie that they had done. I said, it has the word alien in it. No, I don't want to look at it because I've done too much stuff that's not in the real world. Uh, but they said, please, can we, we, you know, so it was, it was an old friend who Harris Cattleman was running Fox television at the time. So I went over and I looked at the movie and, uh, and you know, it, it seemed like, and maybe you've heard me say this, it seemed like Miami Vice with cone heads, you know. Uh, and, uh, but then there was one moment where, uh, the alien cop left home in the morning and waved goodbye to his family. And there was one shot in the movie of this little alien wife and two little alien kids standing in front of this hovel where they were living in slag town. And I thought the bell went off in my head. I, and I went back to Fox and said, okay, you guys think you've got lethal weapon with an alien, alien buddy cop. They said, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, let me do in the heat of the night. And we can get a lot more mileage out of it. This is a show that should be about discrimination and prejudice and intolerance, which is the household that I grew up in was uber intolerant. You know, everybody- how did you manage to escape that? Like, why? Are, how did you not become one? It's a total mystery. I was an only child. I had four siblings to get off hearing the slur, the slur words, the hate words of the, uh, the N word, and. and everything every night at the dinner table every night you know uh and very very anti-semitic and all of that and uh, and for some reason it didn't stick um and and it's interesting because one of my favorite pieces of musical writing was what oscar hammerstein wrote in south pacific uh the song you've got to be taught where the lyrics are you've got to be taught before it's too late before you are six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate you know and um, uh, and and I, I that that moved me even when I was a kid uh, when I saw that. Uh, but I I had friends who were black. I had friends who were Jewish. Uh, I had friends who were Catholic or whatever. And uh, I was sort of raised vanilla Protestant, uh, and now have thankfully walked away from all organized religion. Uh, but they were just kids like me, you know. And uh, and if you put a, a half a dozen kids of mixed ethnicity in a room and they don't know anything from anybody else, they're just kids and they all get along. And uh, so it's it's been something that wherever I could, I have tried to chip away at intolerance. And that's why I sort of jumped at the chance of doing Alien Nation, because I realized uh, uh, I could tell stories about discrimination and prejudice without offending anybody. You know, it was a bit like Archie Bunker in some ways. Uh, you know, you could really say things. Um, and uh, but because they were aliens, we got uh, awards from every minority community you can imagine, because the, the LGBTQ, the Asian American, the uh, Hispanic American, everybody. And certainly my favorite letter came when we first got gone on the air from a black doctor in Detroit who said, Oh, why in the hell? I saw I saw this stupid thing come Alien Nation coming. I said, why in the hell do we need another show about aliens? Why didn't somebody do a show about the black experience? He said, and then I saw your show and realized, oh, it was about the black experience. You know, so that was that was the reason. Right, were you okay, by the way, with the the Rod Serling comparison there? I, I don't want to pigeonhole oh, oh, you, but oh no, no, no! I, I smiled immediately because I I am I am honored by it. I, I'm I'm honored when whenever anybody brings that up. It has happened before, and a number of reviews have have, have referred to me as sort of the Rod Serling of my generation. I said, I wish I were that uh, because 
Uh, I met him when I was in college. Just briefly, he came through Carnegie. And, uh, uh, and oh, really? That's amazing. Well, it was particularly because at when, at Carnegie it was a theater school, you know, and there was no film or God forbid television, you know, and uh, there were like ninety of us sitting and, and talking, and as he uh, talked, and when it came to the Q and A. The only one that had any questions was me because I knew his work and I knew what he had done, and I and and uh, and when I came to California and, and met him and got to know him as a as a as a friend, uh, I reminded him of, about that, and he actually said he remembered me as being the only one that had any substantive questions about television. And and I love what Rod had did on the Twilight Zone and on so many of his other shows, uh, where where he was able to weave. Uh, social substance and context uh, into uh, a dramatic, entertaining story that drew me in, but also made me think. And uh, and that's has really been an inspiration and a touchstone for me. And uh, uh, to have my name in the same sentence with Rod Serling is is a joy. So I want to let you going because I did keep you an hour here, but I have to ask this. I don't know if I'll ever get another chance. Yeah. I mentioned an evening of Edgar Allan Poe that really it's an unusual little uh, film about like 50 or so minutes long of the great Vincent Price just reading Edgar Allan Poe. I was curious, how did that come together? And what was it, it like filming, you know, this great actor, Vincent Price, just reading Poe uh, so no, dramatically? He wasn't, he, he wasn't reading it. Uh, when I, I, I met him when I was doing the Mike Douglas show, he came as everybody, everybody in the world came through the Mike Douglas show. Because if you were promoting anything, a movie, a TV show, yourself, whatever, you came through. And I met Vincent uh, and we got to be friends. Uh, uh, he came two or three times to do the show. And at one point, I just gave him the telltale heart and I put it on a podium in front of the audience and turned down the lights and and had him read it, not the whole thing, but the bulk of it. And, and it was electrifying just reading it. And so when I first came to California, <clears throat> one of the first calls I made was to Vincent. And I said, I got an idea. How about we do a TV special where you enact, not just read, but enact four of Poe's stories that were written in the first person so that they make sense that you are enacting them, telling the story, you know. And of course, the actor in him said, an hour of me, of course, <laughs> you know. And no, he loved the idea and um, uh, and uh, and jumped in immediately wanting to do it. And we made a deal. He was under contract then to American International Pictures uh, and, you know, doing his horror stuff. Yeah, that was uh, Sam Arkoff's company. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Sam Arkoff, the big cigar, you know, uh, boobs and rubber monsters. Yeah, that's what I like, you know. Uh, but Sam was great and uh, and gave me, you know, at the time, I think it was a couple hundred grand to do this two hour special, one hour special with Vincent. And uh, and it was, uh, you know, when we started rehearsing together and we rehearsed for a, a couple of weeks before we did it, uh, you know, I, I went into the rehearsals thinking, OK, he's a friend and I know him and we've talked and all of that. But now I'm a direct I'm going to direct this guy who was on the back lot at Fox doing Song of Bernadette when I was born, the day I was born, he was on the Fox lot that's already as a major star. And But Vincent was like just another actor when you started. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I like I would have been intimidated in that situation. I was, I was, but, but only, but, but for maybe 30 seconds, you know, because we'd start reading and, and, uh, and then I, I would say, hey, well, you know, what about this? Did you think? He said, Oh, that's marvelous. Darling. Let's do that. Kenny. 
you know, and and he was totally collaborative and uh, and brought certainly his wealth of, uh, you know, it wasn't like I just sat back and said, okay, that's all good. That's really good. You know, I mean, we really were into it as director and actor. And uh, but it was uh, it was a it was a wonderful, magical kind of uh, chemistry that we had because he respected me. Uh, and my ideas and uh, and really just got on board. And uh, uh, and I remember once after we had done a take on on, I think it was the the, the pit and the pendulum uh, uh, where we got to the end and and uh, uh, and everybody in the control room was just like blown away, including myself. Uh, and he said, oh, Kenny, let me do one. Th- let me do this piece one more time. I can do better on that. I said, Vincent, it was really good. I can do it better. I can do it. Better. You know, and I said, Let's do it, and we did it, and he did it better, you know. And uh, uh, and it was a, just a, a grand experience. We we uh, uh, as I said, we rehearsed for two weeks in what is it was then the uh, Masonic Lodge, uh, right across the street from the uh, Grumman's Chinese Theater. It's now its own studio where Jimmy Kimmel Kimmel does his show. Yeah, and uh, but uh, no, it was wonderful from beginning to end. Uh, his wife Mary did the costumes for us. Uh, who was a wonderful, wonderful uh, award-winning uh, costume designer, uh, and um, and from the beginning to end, it was just uh, amazing. Uh, and I got Les Baxter to do the musical score, and we crafted a very carefully done score. Uh, and yeah, it's it's such a brilliant piece of work because it's 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 such a minimal concept. Just having Vincent Price, that, like basically in a one-man show, right. uh, you know, reenacting these post stories, but his performance is so spellbounding when he's, he's so into it, you know? Exactly. No, it's true. And uh, the only thing that I've ever seen that was similar in any way was uh, Susie and I were in London once and, um, uh, and in a small theater at Drury Lane, Ben Kingsley was doing a play called Edmund Keane. And it was a one man show about Edmund Keane who had been the preeminent Shakespearean actor of the 1800s. It was said that watching Edmund Cain do Shakespeare was like reading Shakespeare by bolts of lightning, you know, and and we sat there for an hour and a half watching Ben Kingsley do this performance that just took your head off. And it was the closest thing I'd ever seen to to what what Vincent accomplished with me in uh, uh, in the evening of Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm, I'm delighted that people can still get it on DVD or maybe streaming somewhere by now. I don't know. But uh, it's a it's a wonderful piece. And uh, for anybody that's interested in uh, in Edgar Allan Poe or in an astonishing performance by an actor, and Vincent told a lot of people at the time uh, in press interviews and all that it was the he felt it was the best work he had done in Hollywood in the last thirty years, and wow, you know. And um, uh, but we were friends until his death. Uh, Susie and I went up to San Francisco when he was doing a one man show about Oscar Wilde. And uh, uh, and and we were in the audience and then backstage with him afterwards. And uh, it was uh, Susie remembers getting kissed right on the lips. Great big kiss from Vincent, right? As soon as because he, he had not yet met her at that point. It was great. He's a wonderful guy and uh, and one of the bright memories of my my whole life. Well, in closing, I just want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, is there a future um, for, you know, maybe new editions of V? I know that you have the novel um the, yes. the, the well, second I, well, I, yeah i own the motion picture rights 
Uh, and as you could read in the probably, I think that's included in the in the uh, article in the Vanity Fair. I own the movie rights. I was offered just gazillions of dollars to sell the rights to uh, uh, about seven of the major studios. Uh, and but I uh, but I was fearful of not ending up with creative control and seeing it get debauched, as I have seen others of my projects, like the Bionic Woman, when people try to reimagine it, you know, or the Hulk, uh, it doesn't really work. And uh, so I said no to all the money from the studios. And interesting, JG, when you say that, the studios usually say, okay, we understand. How much money do you really want? And I said, no, you don't get it. You don't get it, guys. It's about protecting my baby. It's about protecting uh, this piece of work that is really a, a legacy piece for me uh, and that uh, uh, that I'm so proud of. I just, Susie put it to me very clearly when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do about that. And she said, look, all you have to do, Kenny, is ask yourself this one question. Would you rather that the movie never got made than got made wrong by the wrong people? And I said, yeah, that's it, hands down. So we're still putting, trying to put it together as an independent project, which is a Difficult because it's just expensive. It's like fifty, sixty million dollar movie, uh, but there's uh, there is yet hope, and we're still uh, chasing it. And hopefully, there, there uh, is V, the second generation, though the novel that people. That's can right, read. and the second generation is picks up the story twenty years later, uh, and we see what's become of the world, and it's not so bad really on the surface uh, until we begin to realize that it, it is, and uh, uh, and then uh, and the, the, the resistance really is not going to be able to win, and. Uh, uh, and there's, there's just no hope. And then there's a knock at the back door. And uh, there are people there who are, say, hi, you remember that distress call you sent 20 years ago? Well, we got it. And we're here to help. Or are we? <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and that becomes the engine that drives the, uh, the novel. And, uh, uh, and so we, there will be, if, if the first one is, if we get the first one made and it's successful, there will be two sequels based on be the second generation and, uh, that would be a, a real delight for the whole for the world. I think if you get if you're able to get uh, V and V the second generation made into a movie, is there anything that you know, like maybe you look back at the original miniseries and say, you know, in today's environment, I would have done this differently, or I would have uh, tackled this issue. Is there anything that you would want to see in like a theatrical remake of V or um, v, the second generation on the big screen, like what would you do differently uh, compared to maybe V, the original miniseries? I would not fix things that weren't broken. I would not screw it up by trying to reinvent the wheel. What I see V, the movie, as really is as a revival, JG. You know, when a show opens on Broadway and it's a big hit and it's a big hit that runs for a long time and people love and remember then it's very common uh, in later years or even decades later for a revival to be done. And what do they do? They take the original and they redo it. You know, they don't they don't reinvent it, but they revive it. And certainly that means in the case of V, where I am also the writer and I have the ability to massage it and make it fit cleanly and clearly into the 21st century. That's what I've done with the screenplay for V, the movie. It, it lives and breathes in the 21st century right now in today, and in a today where there are cell phones and things that there weren't before and, uh, uh, and other methods, methods of communication. Uh, but the essence of it uh, is the same. 
And that's what people have always missed when they have tried to remake uh, or redo or reimagine the Bionic Woman or the Hulk or something like that. They missed the essence of what made the original successful. And so it's a, uh, it's a very careful tightrope one has to walk to satisfy the fans of the original who really want to see the original. Because whenever they somebody would do a remake of the Bionic Woman or something, it would get huge tune-in when, when it first went on the air, when it premiered. And uh, it's until people got there and went, oh, this is not the Bionic Woman we wanted to see. You know, oh, there's a new V. Oh, but that's not what we want to see. You know, what we want to see is something that has the integrity and the uh, the depth and the substance uh, and the emotional content, which sucked us in to begin with. And that's what you don't want to mess with. And yes, it would be moved up into the into the into the 21st century and has to be there. And uh, would, would and you, I, for example, would you tackle an issue like I'm in Florida right now, so I'm seeing a lot of oppression of LGBTQ people. Would you tackle an issue like that in in like a modern version of V? I think I would I would uh, address it. I don't know that it would be a seminal point, but it would certainly be. I mean, in, in V, the second generation, there is a gay alien. Uh, who has a uh, relationship with a, uh, he's a doctor guy and has a relationship with a human male. Uh, and, uh, and it's, uh, and it's normal, you know, it's normal. And, uh, uh, and it's, it, it was, it, it was fun to craft that and to create that. Um, and, and, and I think that it makes sense. And also, well, even in the original uh, V, we know that Diana seems to have appetites more than just for, you know, uh, men, and that's true, and we explore that more in both uh, the, the, the the movie and also in the second generation story. Um, and so, you know, that would uh, that will definitely factor in and be aspects of it. The tricky part had been to um, uh, the, the the problem is we're getting farther and farther away from from World War II and the Holocaust. So uh, I have I have devised a different way to uh, to tell exactly the same story, but bring it up into a current context. And I just don't want to get too into it yet, but uh, uh, it 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 makes sense and it works. And you know, so suddenly that whole thing has been moved up in context a generation, uh, and it's in, in many cases the same words, in the same lines, uh, and the same fears. As, as Abraham sees what's happening and who's beginning to seize control of the communications, you know. But, it, but again, it makes sense. It's logical and it, uh, and it serves the purpose of the story. But it also, it also proves the fact that V is a timeless story. Uh, and certainly look at what's going on in our country right now with the people denying the truth denying the anti-vaxxers, you know, the, and, and the people who are denying. I saw Trump last night on the television again saying, I won the 2020 election. It was a landslide. And, you know, and people. Well, go, right. Even even like not not to interrupt you, but even with this issue of, um, you know, you talk about the Holocaust a bit in the, the miniseries. I mean, we're seeing increases in anti-Semitism now and even, oh. you know, younger people that don't know the history of the Holocaust or they have no relationship to it, there's even increases in Holocaust denial. So really, 
you know, a story like V, it's not only timeless, but it's also telling us never forget whether it's uh, Germany in the 1930s and 40s or South Africa during apartheid. You're keeping that banner alive, that idea right. of never forget these things. Right. Or or America in World War Two, when we put Japanese people into concentration camps. You know, it's it's happened here. And uh, uh, you're right. So. That's part of the reason that uh, that I, I am so eager to get it done, because I feel that it still speaks to the world the same way that it did originally and uh, and made me so proud. But uh, I, I want to thank you so much. I'm sorry I kept you so long, but okay. I appreciate it. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work, though? Um, well, I have a website, which is this my name, Kenneth Johnson dot U.S., Kenneth Johnson, one word, dot U.S. There's a website there. There's a Facebook page as well, which is Kenneth Johnson Author, like A-U-T-H-O-R, author. Uh, and uh, I've got a, a new uh, book about Sherlock Holmes that came out just last uh, fall. And uh, uh, and the other ones are there. If you go to KennethJohnson.us, you can see more than you'll ever want to know. <laughs> you know but, uh, but thanks for the opportunity to mention that. And, um, uh, and uh, I will hold good thoughts for your show as well and that you continue and uh, give us people, people like me the opportunity to come on and, uh, and be your guest. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kenny Johnson. And if you haven't done so yet, you'll check out the, the original miniseries. Even after 40 years, it still holds up, in my humble opinion. It has a lot to tell us about the dangers of our current political climate. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.